Good morning, Grace family. If this is your first Sunday here, or if it's the first Sunday in a while, I just want you to know you've come at the perfect time because we are just beginning a new series in Matthew that we hope to will continue and carry us all the way through until Easter. So we are today in Matthew chapter 2. As Jeremy introduced, if you were here last week, you heard uh, probably the best sermon, best sermon I've ever heard on Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy by Trent Rogers. That was the witness of the genealogy. But the first four chapters here kind of fit together. You can see the theme, the way we outline them. All of them have to do with witness because all of them are designed to encourage the reader that Jesus is the Christ. Now, you might say, well, I'm convinced I'm a believer. Well, listen to what Matthew has to say because he's going to gather these witnesses together, the genealogy and of the Old Testament prophets and of John the Baptist and the father who will anoint him and even a sort of backhanded witness by the enemy. And the reason he's going to do that is because when we get to chapter 5, where Jesus begins to speak in the Sermon on the Mount, he wants us to be ready to hear him properly. The Sermon on the Mount is not an essay that is to be critiqued. It is teaching from God that is to be received in a worshipful attitude. And the only way you can do that is if you listen to Matthew describe who Jesus is and become fully convinced of that. So in the first four chapters, Jesus is a rather passive character. That is, he's just, you know, an infant or a child all the way through the two chapters. He doesn't even appear as an adult until the end of chapter three. So if you have a red letter Bible, there are not many red letters in the first four chapters. Those don't start till chapter five. And so what Matthew is doing here is helping us to see who Jesus is completely. So if you take a look at chapter 2 then, the outline looks like this. And one of the problems with this chapter is that we know those first 12 verses really well. We know that because we read them every Christmas time. He was there born in the manger and the wise men came and they gave him gold and frankincense and myrrh and just wonderful stuff. But after that, we don't know so much, because that's where you always stop, verse 12. This whole flight to Egypt, that's like, that's oh, kind of a strange, why would this Jewish king go down to Egypt? And then there's that portion where Herod kills the children, and that's not appropriate for a, you know, a Christmas play with kids in it. And then there's that return to Nazareth, which just seems like sort of a loose end follow-up, and so we don't really think too much about it. But if you were to take the, the chapter and put it together and begin to say, how does it fit? One of the things you might notice is this. There's a lot of geography here. There's Bethlehem, and then there's Egypt, and then there is Nazareth. And so you might be forgiven for asking the question, is this chapter simply a travelogue? And the answer to that is, well, yes. In some ways it is. This is about the travels of the young Messiah and his family. And so there is a major emphasis in this chapter about where Jesus has gone from this place to this place to this place. That's the top layer. But then there's a layer underneath that that's perhaps a little more important, which is the prophetic explanation of why he goes there. It is really significant that he goes to Bethlehem. And it's really significant he goes to Egypt. And it's really significant that he goes to Nazareth. This isn't something that just happened. 
But underneath that, there is in fact a third layer about where he will go in the future. Now, I don't, uh, it, it would be really nice to go through this verse by verse, but I just can't do it that way. I have to take a look at these layers or it gets confusing. Quick illustration. My favorite birthday dessert is ice cream cake. When my wife makes this for me, she starts with a bunch of crumbled Oreo cookies and butter and lays them out flat in the pan. Puts them in the freezer until it all freezes. And she brings it back out and puts some soft ice cream, vanilla ice cream down there, about a half a gallon and, and a half a quart, half a, whatever it is. Puts that down. Smooths it all out puts that in the freezer till it gets hard, and then brings it out, and now she takes this warm fudge, waits till it cools, and pours it all over the top, and then puts it back in the freezer. So it doesn't get all jumbled up. It's in those nice, distinct layers. Now, when you eat it, you know, you get to eat all three layers in one shot, but you make it a layer at a time. And that's the best way I can describe what we're going to do here. In order to explain these things to you clearly so it makes sense, we take them a layer at a time. What we're going to find is this, that where Jesus has gone is really about the geography, from Bethlehem to Egypt and Nazareth. So we'll talk about that, and then we'll get to the more important layer, the deeper layer, that is about the prophets, Micah and Hosea and others, who explain why he goes to these places. And finally, this last one is going to be what I'm going to call a mirror effect. I know that doesn't mean much to you now, but it's, it's a really deeply involved thing. Now, one of the best analogies I can think of to explain this, and I don't know if this will work for you or not, but it, it's this picture. Does this picture make any sense to you? Do you all know what you're looking at here? Some of you may have actually been to it. This is, this is the, what they call the Van Gogh immersive experience. It's playing in New York and Chicago and various places, and even in Columbus. I wanted to take my wife there for her birthday, but I turned out and so I... Couldn't do it. Sorry, honey. But what they do is they let you, they have the artwork <clears throat> projected on the walls and let you work through it because when you have a masterpiece, it's nice to get around and to be immersed in it and to see it from every different angle and perspective. And I don't know if I'm overselling it or not, but I just want to say that Matthew chapter 2 is a literary masterpiece that is worth being immersed in. And I hope that as we look at these various layers, that you will have a sense and a wonder of what God has done in the chapter. So with that, let me get started and talk about the geography. First layer, easy part, gets harder and deeper after this. Not harder, but deeper, right? So the geography is simply this. Let me put a map of Israel up here, and we find ourselves... Uh, when we look at the map, you can orient yourself by taking a look at the Sea of Galilee and then the Dead Sea on the bottom. When you go to the top of the Dead Sea and draw a little line here straight to the west to the Mediterranean and go one-third of the way where the red lines intersect, if you can see it, that's the city of Jerusalem. Once you get Jerusalem, then you can just go two or three miles, three or four miles to the south, and that's Bethlehem in the white dot, right? So Bethlehem is where we find ourselves in the first 12 verses. This is where Jesus is born. This is the house where they live in the first year or two. This is where the wise men come. Herod wants to know, and all that intrigue happens in the first 12 verses. Then the angel comes to Joseph, of course, and says, you've got to get out of here 
And that's where we have to expand the map to include Egypt. So now, from verses 13 to 18, we are in Egypt, and this is where the baby boys in Bethlehem are killed. And at the end of this time, the angel comes to Joseph and says, it's time to go back. Now, it's interesting. The angel tells him, Herod is dead. It's safe. And so he heads back to where he assumes he should go, which is Bethlehem. This is where the Messiah ought to be raised, right? And he gets back there and discovers, you know, that angel left out one important detail. He didn't tell me that Herod was dead, but Archelaus, his son, who's as bad as he is, is now in charge. And I, I can't stay here. And so what am I going to do? And it's just kind of like, well, plan B is go up here to Nazareth. And so verses 19 to 23, we find ourselves up here in Nazareth. Now, that's where we're going. Next, we're going to talk about why we go there. But before we do that, let me say one more thing about geography, and that's this. This little map that you would typically find in the back of your Bible uh, shows us, of course, the brown section, which is Galilee, which is where Nazareth is, of course. Nazareth is the little city right by the G in Galilee, if you can see it there. As you take a look at that map, you see some topography and terrain, some it's kind of a hilly, mountainous area, except for one spot, which is just south of Nazareth. And that's a very flat, broad plain, 30 miles at least, called the Jezreel Valley. This is a satellite shot. And even from the satellite shot, you can see again Nazareth in the white dot, and you can see a pretty broad uh, set of farmers' fields. If you look really close, you can find an Israeli air base on there as well. It's just 30 miles of flatness, and it's really unique. Uh, let me show you a close-up picture, and you'll get the idea. Worth a thousand words, I guess. This is a really fertile, wonderful place if you're a farmer. So you can see in this picture the reservoirs and the green fields, and it's just beautiful, and it's been like that since time began because the Jezreel Valley is the breadbasket. So it's different than what it's like in the south. In the south, there are hills, and you can do a little farming, but you have to do it with terraces. It's really better for raising sheep in the south and here for growing. Now, no one was actually really wealthy, most people. Uh, not, no one was really well off, but at least if you lived here, you were well fed. Right? It, it, it's a pretty comfortable, good place to live. That will become important as we move on. So, let me get then to number two, layer number two. Why does Jesus go there? And this is where he enlists the prophets to explain all of these movements. Now, uh, Isaiah and Micah and Hosea and Jeremiah and others are going to be involved. And the most classic statement is right here in chapter 1, verse 22. Now, I've fudged a little bit, I've cheated a little bit, I've gone back three verses, because Matthew doesn't always abide by the chapter divisions, okay? But he starts here with this really uh, concise quote, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And that phrase, or facsimile of it, appears about 15 times in the entire book. So think 28 chapters, 15 times, and what I want you to see here is that five of those 15, a full one-third of them, are in this very compact little passage. What that means is that, that uh, 
Matthew is really marshalling his Old Testament prophetic evidence right here. This is jam-packed. It's concentrated with the prophets. The big idea of the passage is what the prophets contribute to it. Now, we're not going to talk too much about Isaiah. We're going to ignore Jeremiah because we just don't have time to talk about all of them. But I do want to talk about three in particular, Micah and Hosea and the Nazarene one. Now, you might say, why such a weird name? Well, you'll see when we get there why I call it the Nazarene one. So, let's begin with the very first quotation, Micah. And here it is in chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Now, you will notice that the quotation from Micah uh, starts here in verse 5. For so it is written by the prophet, and there it comes in verse 6. But you can tell here from the blue that Matthew really likes the fact that Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea. He likes it so much, he says it three times. Number one, he says it in verse one. Then number two, he has the scribes say it again in verse five. And then in verse six, he lets Micah say it again because he really wants us to know he's born in Bethlehem of Judea. And you know, if you've read chapter 1, why that is, because that's where David was born. And if Jesus is going to be a better David, he has to be born there. But I want to go a little bit deeper and show you what it looks like in Micah. On the left is the way Matthew quotes it. On the right is the way Micah writes it. And you'll notice, first of all, that Micah says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata." And Matthew changes Ephrata to in the land of Judah. Now, I, don't, I really shouldn't use the word change. That's a bad word because change implies something different. And Matthew is not really saying something different. He's saying the same thing in perhaps a clearer way. The problem, of course, was that there is more than one Bethlehem, just like there's more than one Springfield. There could be Springfield, Ohio, or Massachusetts, or Illinois, or Missouri, on and on and on. Is there anybody, any state that doesn't have a Springfield? So we got more than one Bethlehem. And so Micah says, you know, Beth, Bethlehem in the region of Ephrata. And Matthew says, yeah, that's true. But there's also a tribe that lives there, and it's the land of Judah. Now, why does Matthew substitute that? Well, he's really being like the optometrist who puts those different lenses in front of your eyes. You know what I'm talking about? You go and they say, how about this one? Can you see clear? One or two? And they're like, uh, I don't know. I can't tell the difference between one and two. Two or three? I don't know. And eventually, though, they'll say, oh, oh, that, that's, that's clear. That's really good. And what Matthew has done here is he, he's just given us a different lens to say, you know, this is Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Those are the kingly tribes. This is the royal tribe. Genesis 49, out of Judah right? The scepter will come. The kings will come. And so he's emphasizing over and over, this is where David, the king, the rulers from Judah lived. And that's where Jesus was born. But you'll notice also at the end, in the blue here, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. But that's not in Micah. Micah finishes with the gray in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, where does Matthew get that from? Well, what Matthew does is he goes to 2 Samuel chapter 5, where God says to David, 
you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. David was a shepherd of sheep. Now he becomes a shepherd of people because he cares for them in the same way. And so what Matthew does is he grabs a little bit from Micah and a little bit from Samuel to put it together so you can get a really good picture. Who is Jesus? Well, he's born in David's city in the tribe of Judah, and he's going to be shepherd over my people Israel. And we already saw this from the genealogy last week. He's going to be like David, but even better. And that's the way he kind of shapes the quotation to help us see it more clearly. Now, the trouble is, this one's pretty straightforward. This one's pretty easy to see, right? Where I want to go next, though, is this. The next quotation is a little bit more challenging, also a little bit more interesting, I think. This is the flight to Egypt. So here it is, verses 13 to 15, and the angel says, take the child and his mother. Now, typically we would think mother and child, right? But he reverses the order. Why? Well, because with this child, the child is preeminent. Right? Take the child, the Messiah, and his mother, and take them to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I've called my son. Now, at that point, I look at Matthew, and I say, Matthew, thank you. I did not know that Hosea had a prophecy about Messiah, about Jesus. But that's great to see. I can't wait to go look it up in Hosea and see that prophecy about Jesus. So I turn back to Hosea, and I find this. When, wait, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I've called my son. Now, is Jesus in there? And the answer is, no, he's not. Because the, next, the context shows us the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt offerings. This is talking about Israel. And so I look and I think, no, wait a minute, uh, Matthew, you, you can't do that. This is not talking about Jesus. Where do you see Jesus here? I mean, it does say son, but that seems strange to me. And I keep looking in my Old Testament and I see in the book of Exodus that referring to Israel as God's son is a pretty common thing. God says to uh, to Pharaoh, you must say, or to, to Moses, you must say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn, and you must let my son go that he may serve me. Now, what does Matthew see in this Hosea passage, right? And I think what he sees is this, and maybe this will help explain it. You have probably heard somewhere in Sunday school or church or reading Bible or some class that Jesus is the second or better Adam. And that's true. Paul says that clearly in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 5. He says, in Adam all die, in Christ all should be made alive. Jesus is a second Adam. Right? That's what he calls him. But actually, Paul isn't the first one to say that because Matthew said that. Matthew said that in the very beginning when he said the book of the genealogy of Jesus because that came directly from Genesis 5.1 the book of the genealogy of Adam. What Adam failed to do, Jesus is going to do himself. But we also saw this, that Jesus is a better David. Again, Trent, in this fantastic sermon last week, walked us through that. 
Because in the genealogy in verse 6 of chapter 1, it says, and all this came to David the king. And we think, yes, David is the king. And then the very, very next verse says, and David had a son named Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And he just throws that adultery and murder right in our faces. And we think, oh, David was the king, but David was not a great king because David used his power for his own selfish purposes. We, we don't just need another David. We, we need a better David. And of course, that's what the rest of the chapter is about. But we're also going to see in this book of Matthew that Jesus is a better Moses. Now, you may or may not have heard of that one before, but you're going to see it in Matthew because in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses says, someday the Lord will raise up another prophet like me, but you will listen to him. We'll see that later as we go. But now that you've seen the pattern, what I want you to understand is that Jesus is also a better Israel. Now, again, that might seem strange because you think, how can Jesus be a better nation? Well, he's not a better nation, but he's a better son than Israel was because God called Israel to be a son who trusted the Father and told everyone about him. And Israel failed miserably in all of those. So what do we have here? Well, we have this parallel set up and what Matthew's doing is identifying it. On the left-hand side, Israel comes out of Egypt. So on the right-hand side, you know what? Jesus comes out of Egypt too, Matthew chapter 2. And on the left-hand side, after Israel comes out of Egypt, she's baptized in the waters of the Red Sea. And Jesus, in chapter 3, is baptized in the River Jordan. After that experience, Israel endures 40 years of testing in the wilderness, and Jesus endures 40 days of testing in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. So that he comes through as a faithful son. Now, what is Matthew doing here? What Matthew is trying to say is simply this, right? That Jesus is the better son who must walk in all the footsteps of Israel in order to succeed where she failed, in order to save her. Now, Matthew is not the only one who knows this because watch this supreme example. Deuteronomy chapter 8 written, spoken by Moses to the wilderness generation after they'd gone through the 40 years. Watch what he says to them. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Now, you may not have known those words came from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Most of us recognize those words, man does not live by bread alone, as the quotation of Jesus in the, in the wilderness in chapter 4. Why does Jesus do that? Because he knows that he is reliving the life of Israel. And when Jesus is in the wilderness and a temptation comes about food, Jesus does not complain about the food as the Israelites did. He trusts the Father for his food and says, I will not turn that stone to bread. And Jesus is deliberately, intentionally living the life of Israel over again. And so why does God send him down to Egypt? So that we could make the connection, this is the son who's going to succeed where the other son failed. So we come back here then to out of Egypt, I've called my son. 
And maybe this is a good way to show it. What Hosea saw in two dimensions like a circle, Matthew sees in three dimensions in the fullness of it. Was it talking about Jesus originally? No. But in the extensive ultimate plan of God, Jesus comes and relives that life and in a greater way it is speaking about Messiah who fulfills what Israel didn't. That's what Matthew's teaching us from the way he quotes here. So let me take you then to the last one, which is the difficult one, but again, more important than the others even, I think. So here's the way the passage goes. It says this, when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Egypt saying, rise, take the child and go back. So he goes back, gets to Judea where he thinks he probably should settle in the city of Bethlehem, and he finds, oh, I can't do that. Archelaus is worse, so what are we going to do now? And, and it almost looks like, well, uh, I, I, I guess we'll go back to Nazareth. Kind of seems like plan B, right? And when they do, then the prophet comes along, or Matthew cites a prophet, and says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, I've kind of colored it up with blue here, so let me take the blue out and just focus on the text the way it appears. And this, in the rectangle, <clears throat> is our quotation. Now, I don't know if you notice this, but there's something wrong here. Do you, do you catch it? you see what's wrong? Something terribly wrong here. Let me, let me go back and show you, well, let me just give you a picture. Maybe this will be worth a thousand words. I know the words are too small, but this is just a picture of my Bible. And as you take a look at that, uh, what is your eye drawn to? For most of us, I would think you'd probably see that rectangle right there. You see that? And your eye is drawn there because the editors want it to be drawn there because that's an Old Testament quotation. That's the Old Testament quotation by Isaiah in chapter one, and it's bolded, it's italicized, and it has quotation marks. Now, if we go to chapter two then, it looks like this, and immediately you can see them. Oh, look, there's the Micah quote, and there's the Hosea quote, and there's the Jeremiah quote that we're not going to look at, but they just stick out. Boom, 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 boom. Can't miss them. Now, let me take that right-hand page and scoot it over to the left, and you can see clearly Hosea on the top, Jeremiah on the bottom, and now, this is a little test, I'm going to throw our Nazarene quote up there, and I want you to spot it as soon as you can, all right? Here we go. You see it? You see it? You get it? Now, if your eyes were drawn to the bottom, you can be forgiven for that, because that's a good Old Testament quote, but that's not the Nazarene quote. The Nazarene quote is right here. Now do you see what's wrong with it? You see the problem? There's no bolding. There's no italics. There are no quotation marks. Why is that? You ready for this? Because it ain't a quote. Wait, no. Matthew said it was a quote. I know. That's what he said. But it's not a quote. Like, wait a minute. What's going on here? And I just want you to know that I had words with Matthew about this. <laughs> if it bothers you, it bothers me too. Right? I said, Matthew, what are you doing? This I've looked all the way through the Old Testament. This is not a quote. Are you playing fast and loose with the text? Did you think that we would be lazy and wouldn't go back and look it up? Um, I mean, it just, it just makes your case look very weak to say it's a quote when it's really not a quote. 
And Matthew said to me, lighten up, grasshopper. <laughs> take a break, take a breath, listen and learn. And so I did. I began to listen, I began to think, I began to study, and here's what I found. I want to show you. What I found is this. This idea that the prophets, it might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. When you take a look at the geography of Galilee, and this is why I showed you the picture of the fields before, it was not only a breadbasket or a comfortable place to live, but the rabbis said this about the difference between Galilee and Jerusalem. They would say this, that if you want to be rich, you can live in Galilee. If you want to be holy, you live in Jerusalem. Why? Well, because it's harder living in Jerusalem. There are hills, and it's hard to farm. If you just want to be a rich farmer, and you don't care about God and His temple, you go live in Galilee. But you're going to be a second-class citizen spiritually, as far as I'm concerned. Right? That's part of the way they were described. But also, notice the people who lived in Galilee. Matthew describes it like this. Jesus makes his hometown in Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, why did all the Gentiles live in Galilee? Because the Gentiles weren't stupid, okay? I mean, if you want to live in Jerusalem, that's hard. If you want a nice, comfortable lifestyle, go to Galilee. And besides, there was a big international highway that flowed right through Galilee and through Capernaum, and so it was just flooded with Gentiles. Another reason why the spiritual folks down in Jerusalem had wanted nothing to do with Galilee. Not a place where you would expect the Messiah to grow up. But then notice the reputation of Galilee. And this one's, there's so much to it, I have to start with a fresh screen, okay? So some of the people said, and John tells us this in chapter 7, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, wait a minute, is the Christ to come from Galilee? That seems strange. Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? Now, all of us here who've read Matthew want to raise our hands and say, oh, we, we know the answer. That's where he was born. Well, yeah, he does. It's part of the reason, again, why Matthew clears this up. But the people say that the prophet, the Messiah, he can't come from Galilee. That just doesn't make any sense at all. But notice this. When Nicodemus sticks up for him, the rest of the Pharisees look at him and say, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? Investigate carefully, and you'll see that no prophet comes from Galilee. Now, what they're saying is not quite accurate because Jonah actually comes from Galilee, but it's not the accuracy or inaccuracy of their statement. It's, it's the attitude I want you to see. You come from Galilee too? And it's not just the enemy. Look at this. One of Jesus' own disciples, Nathaniel, has this to say. When a friend comes and says, look, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You get, you get the sense here that this place in Nazareth is just really, really despised. Let me, let me put it, use this illustration. Let's say that Harvard University is going to announce their next president. And, and everybody's waiting to see at this bastion of Ivy League intelligentsia, who's it going to be? And they say, the next president of the university is, drumroll, he was born and raised and educated in West Virginia. Now, if you're from West Virginia, my apologies, but you get the idea, right? If that's all you can say, people are going to say, no, 
No, uh, several things are wrong with that. And that's exactly how we are here. But perhaps the strongest piece of evidence is this. When it comes to the ultimate humiliation of Jesus, which is the cross, remember what the title at the top of the cross says. When Pilate really wants to humiliate him, he says, yeah, you know what? This notice says Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, because he really wants to stick at the Jewish leadership. So he says, here's your king, the Nazarene. Let's say, don't say that. I mean, they're happy to call him a Nazarene because they don't like him, but they don't want anybody to think this Nazarene was their king at all. So you look at this and you say, now, wait a minute. Is there any place, any place at all in the Old Testament where this kind of thing, this kind of idea is talked about? And, you know, it just so happens that there are a few. For example, this one, which Jeremy already read for us. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who would have guessed? For he, Messiah, grew up before him, the Father, like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground. What does that mean? What it means is this beautiful messianic young plant, you would have never guessed he'd come out of the dry ground of Nazareth the spiritual wasteland of Nazareth in Galilee. No one would guess that. And the point is, nobody had to because he, Jesus, grew up before the Father. The Father saw that and said, yes, this is good. This is a perfect spot. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You're from Nazareth. How could you be Messiah? And do you realize that Jesus lived with this, this um, despised reputation all of his life? I mean, Mary and Joseph did too. They lived under the cloud that they were an impure couple. They had an illegitimate son, and the Pharisees throw this in their face on a regular basis. We're not illegitimate like you are. But it doesn't matter what people think because he grew up before him, even though he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid our faces from him. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Now, my guess is that if Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel got together and you told them Messiah is going to be born in Nazareth, their response would be, wow, that's perfect. We didn't know that exact fact, but it fits the pattern so perfectly. Yes, of course, God's ways are not our ways, and that is exactly a perfect place for him to be born. Think of the road, the, the couple on the road to Emmaus. And they stood still, looking sad. You know, Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, we kind of hoped he would be the one. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What did he talk about? I'd love to know what he talked about on that road. I'll tell you. I'll bet he talked about Micah. I'll bet he talked about Hosea. He probably talked about Isaiah and the Nazarene stuff. And he probably said things like this, like, okay, boys, let me tell you a story. There was this little boy who had 11 brothers. 
The 11 brothers kind of despised him. They, they didn't like him, but his father loved him. And in order to get rid of him, they sold him for pieces of silver. And they sent him away to Egypt. But he was faithful and pure. And God blessed him and God used him to save his brothers. Now, does that plot line sound vaguely familiar? And everyone around must have said, oh, the story of Joseph, we had no idea. It's right there, and we never recognized it. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you another story about a little boy who had seven brothers, and they despised him and spoke pretty mean to him. And even the prophet didn't think he ought to be king, but when he went through the first seven and said, is this, this is not the one, is there anybody else? Well, we got this little one, but he's a shepherd. I don't know if he's the one or not. And Samuel said, that's the one. And they spoke badly to them, but he went and he killed the giant and saved his brothers. Now, does that plot sound familiar? And the people said, oh, our hearts burned within us, as the text says. Did not our hearts burn within us? Well, he talked to us on the road and he opened to us the scriptures. And again, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel are all saying, yeah, this is it. And Paul even says the same thing, that Jesus did not think that being equal with God was something to be grasped at or held onto, but he made himself of no reputation. So you look at Matthew and say, now, Matthew, where do you get this quote from? And Matthew would say, where can you not get it from? Where do you not see it? It's all over the place. It's so everywhere. I don't even need to quote an exact one. If you have read your Old Testament, you'll see it's everywhere. This is how Messiah is always presented. No reputation, didn't care, but he was beloved by the Father, and God used him. Now, that's just the second layer. One more. Let me, let me summarize like this. Jesus is a better David from Micah. Jesus is a son of God from Hosea. Jesus is despised and rejected from the Nazarene passage. But even more importantly, every part of his life, though it may seem random, why in the world did he go to Egypt? Why did he go back to Judea? Or even wrong, why did he go to Nazareth? Fits the divine plan woven into the fabric of the Old Testament on the deepest levels. So let me take you quickly to this last one, this last level, where he will go. Again, last week, Trent said to us, we want to be whole Bible Christians. What he meant by that was we need to read the New Testament and the Old Testament. It did my heart so much good to hear my New Testament colleague say that. But then this week, Jeremy said to me, said to all of us, we want to be whole book readers. What do you mean by that? He said, well, you need to read Matthew in one sitting. And he's exactly right. You know why? Because of this. Watch this. If you read Matthew in one sitting, you're going to make some connections between chapter 1 and chapter 28. You're going to recognize that the Jesus who will save his people from their sins is the one who at the end is resurrected to do that. You're going to recognize that the Emmanuel, which means God with us of chapter 1, is the same one who in the very last sentence says, I am with you always to the end of the earth. But 1 and 28 are really child's play when you compare 2 and 27. Because these are just like two mirrors that reflect each other ad infinitum. 
They just go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. What are you talking about? Well, when you read 2 by itself, you don't see it. You don't see all this there until you read 27. And here's what I mean. When you take a look at chapter 2, we've seen all these things, how he's born in Bethlehem, called the king of the Jews, all of that. But now when you read chapter 27, you can't miss the fact that in 2750, he is sacrificed on the cross. This little lamb born in Bethlehem is now taken to Jerusalem for sacrifice. He's called the king of the Jews by Gentiles in chapter 2, and the only other place in the book he's called king of the Jews by Gentiles is in chapter 27, where Pilate does it. Jerusalem is troubled in chapter 2, but they shout for his death in 20, 27. The chief priests assemble together in both 2, 4, and 27, 1 before a Roman ruler. Gentiles worship the wise men do in 2, 11, and the centurion does, says, is this one not the son of God? Joseph is warned in a dream in 2, and Pilate's wife is warned in a dream, have nothing to do with him, for he's a righteous man. Joseph cares for Jesus and takes him to Egypt, but that Joseph is long dead. So there's another Joseph of Arimathea who takes him and puts him in his own tomb in 27. He's called the Son of God in 2.15. So does the centurion in chapter 27. The leaders plot his death in 2.16, but in 27.26 they do it again, and this time they're successful. And finally, he's despised as a Nazarene, and that's what the cross is all about. They put him on the cross, and the leadership mocks him. Everyone who walks by mocks him. Even the thieves on the cross mock him as well. So what do we see from this? What we see is that at his birth, his death is foreshadowed. What we see is that what happens here in these seemingly random events are sovereignly, providentially determined so that they reflect where he's going. Now, I want you to know that Matthew is a great writer, but Matthew is not a writer of fiction. He can't make these things up. He's only writing what God has determined in eternity past would be the plan, and it perfectly reflects. So the sweet baby boy was born to die and to save those who would put him to death. The obvious and top layer of the travelogue moves from Bethlehem to Egypt and to Nazareth in the top layer. But in this bottom one, the deepest layer points toward where he will go to Jerusalem. Now, where do we go from here? What, what do we do with all this information? If you're looking for a bullet-pointed list of things to go away and do right now, I don't have one of those for you. Because the chapter, I don't think, compels us to do that. What the chapter compels us to do is to reflect and to think about what not just Matthew has done in this chapter, but what God has done in this chapter. And it also calls us to prepare because as I told you those first four chapters are all about telling us who Jesus is. And they don't really ask us to do much of anything until we get to the end of chapter 4 where Matthew, where Jesus is going to call his disciples. Now, those disciples don't just immediately respond to Jesus not having known him. They knew a lot. And what they knew is what Matthew has now told us in chapters 1 through 4. The witness of the genealogy of the prophets of the forerunner and the father and of the enemy. All of this is meant to convince us who he is so that when in chapter 4, two weeks from now, 
when Jesus calls his disciple, you and I are to put ourselves in that spot and say, if Jesus were calling me, what would I do? I want you to prepare. I don't, I don't want to pressure you today, but I want you to think about that. When Jesus shows up, would you be ready to drop everything and follow him? I'm not asking about vocation. I'm asking about heart. Let the scriptures do their work in your heart. So what do we learn about the Old Testament Messiah today? Is this a simple book that's irrelevant for us? Was it composed by a collection of clever people over 1,500 years who got really lucky when it all fit together? If all the authors of the Old Testament focused on one person, what does that imply for me? And I'll tell you what it implies is this, that the Old Testament is not a self-help book giving us tips about how to make life better. The only thing all the Old Testament authors cared about is focusing on this one. You know why? Because there's salvation in no other but this one. The only hope you have, the only hope I have, is completely wrapped up in one person. There's no thing I can do, there's no fig leaf I can grab for that will cover my sin except for this one. Last week, in our call to worship, Bob Bikert read this to all of us, and it so touched me, I wanted to conclude with it here. The glory of God is the most powerful agent of transformation available to mankind. Absolutely true. I learned from Paul in 2 Corinthians that if I want to become all that God wants me to be, I must behold His glory each day. I don't know how chapter 2 resonates with you, but I hope that being immersed in this literary masterpiece helps you to see not just the little A author, but the capital A author of God the Holy Spirit and God the Father of how they have focused on God the Son, the only hope of redemption. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we consider who Jesus is, from this unlikely set of chapters, just a genealogy and a travelogue, that, Lord, we would see what you want us to see from it, that Jesus is undoubtedly, without question, the Messiah we've all longed for. And so, Lord, I pray that all the other things that are so trivial in our lives would not overshadow that, but that that would overshadow everything else and to God, our focus, our thoughts, our hope, our dreams, Lord, the longings of our hearts would be to love him and to follow him with every fiber of our being. We pray it in his matchless name.